This free program is paid for by the listener members of KPFK. If you're not already a member, consider joining with us and keep free speech alive. You're going to love this. Just love it. That's why I came here. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. I am not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. And I'm wondering what it is I should do. Once again, stuck yes, in the middle with you right here on KPFK. Pacifica Radio, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, and 99.5 FM Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org and the radioornot.com network. I am Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. I am uh, Brad of bradblog.com, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. Uh, back again with you live right here in Los Angeles this afternoon, as we are every week, 3 p.m. Pacific time, <clears throat> broadcasting, broadcasting from... Uh, where are we here? In the somewhere in the valley? Is that it? Are we in the valley? Burbank? No. Where? Where? Bur- Burbank or St- Burbank or Studio City? Um, there we go. And my uh, headphones are out. All right. Well, in any case, wherever we are, wherever you are, glad you could join us. You can uh, tweet us throughout the show. My Twitter name is the Brad Blog. We'd love to, as always, hear from you there. Uh, it is today, the 44th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And here we are, 44 years later in this nation, still fighting like hell for our rights. And things seem to be getting worse, not better. And uh, I suspect some folks from Santa Monica some students out there at Santa Monica College could uh, tell you that quite directly if they were here with us today uh, concerning the pepper spray incident that happened yesterday when students were uh, trying to express their opinions about a 400% increase in tuition for some classes at Santa Monica College at a, uh, <clears throat> at a meeting of the uh, uh, Board of Trustees out there, and the thanks they received was a face full of pepper spray. We're going to be speaking with Margo Paez, our super-duper associate producer and contributor to uh, the KPFK Evening News, uh, about that in a little bit. Uh, and uh, <laughs> equally as uh, disturbing when it comes to rights is what we uh, cover here every week on the Bradcast and certainly at bradblog.com. Not so much the horse race that everyone else covers in this year's presidential election, but the track conditions on which those horses are running. We have been talking for weeks, months, actually. I've been talking about it for years, concerns about electronic voting systems, specifically concerns about touchscreen voting systems, but... 
even uh, just as much, really, concerns about paper ballot optical scan systems, just like the ones we use here in Los Angeles, L.A. County, the largest uh, voting jurisdiction in the nation. Well, similar machines were used in a March 13th election in Palm Beach County, Florida. Paper ballots. So everything's fine, right? Yeah, not so much. Especially not if uh, nobody bothers to count those paper ballots. Instead, they run them through uh, optical scan computers. And whatever the computers tell us, well, those will be the results unless we check them by hand, which we rarely, if ever, do. In Palm Beach County, Florida's March 13th election, thankfully, they checked a few of those ballots by hand after the election down there in Florida, which, by the way, is not easy in the state of Florida. We'll tell you about that in a minute or two here. But what they found was that several races, three different races, had been reported inaccurately by the Sequoia Optical Scan Voting Systems. In fact, three races had been mis, uh, misreported entirely. Two people that did not win their races were declared the winner of their races. And thankfully, that was uh, discovered via a hand count of a small portion, a spot check after the election uh, of a couple of ballots. And it was finally settled about three weeks later, just over this past weekend, when they did a full 100% hand count of paper ballots, what I like to refer to as democracy's gold standard. And they determined that, in fact, the computers had it wrong, much as we've been warning for so long. And the people who counted it with their eyeballs had it right. I spoke with the supervisor of elections, uh, Susan Booker, about this uh, mess just a couple of days ago. And uh, she said that, in fact, the hand count was 100%. We weren't missing a ballot. She said, frankly, without paper ballots and without audits, we would have let the wrong winners serve. Well, guess what? Those Sequoia optical scan systems are the same systems that are used across Wisconsin in yesterday's election. They'll be used across Wisconsin in the upcoming recall uh, uh, elections up there in the Badger State. They're also used in 285 jurisdictions across this nation. 14 states, including Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Illinois, Louisiana, Michigan, Missouri, uh, New Jersey, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, along with Wisconsin, uh, those same systems, the systems that fail down there in Palm Beach County, will once again be used this year when we all go to the polls to elect the President of the United States. And then, by the way, we almost never bother to check those paper ballots after the uh, computer pro, uh, computer opscans have told us what they say. All right. Well, I'm going to be joined. Uh, I want to talk about this with a couple of guests here. Pamela Smith from Verified Voting. She's the president of Verified Voting Foundation and VerifiedVoting.org. Uh, she joins me along with Dan McRae, the president of the Florida Voters Foundation, a nonpartisan election watchdog group. Uh, Pam and Dan, welcome, both of you, to the broadcast. Thanks, Brad. Hi, Brad. Nice to be with you. Hey, great to have you here. Okay, well, let's uh, let's start uh, specifically with Dan in Florida before we uh, broaden it out to the rest of the country a little bit. Uh, Dan, one of the problems that ca- that uh, came up in Florida when they discovered that the wrong winners had been declared, or I should say, the losers had been declared the winner. One of the problems uh, in the state of Florida is that incredibly, that state has just six days 
to certify their election? How can a full audit and canvas possibly be done if the election has to be certified in six days? And when did we get this crazy law in the Sunshine State that only gives six days to look at, look at any election? Yeah, it's uh, six days in a primary and 11 and a half days, oddly enough, in a general election. And the, the law's been on the books for some time, and we've advocated for some time that it needs to be longer in order for elections officials to have time to do good work like we want them to do. So this would include 11, what did you say, 11 and a half days? Yeah. 11, okay, 11 and a half days when we get to the uh, November presidential election. Uh, to go back, and though I know it's only one or two counties actually in Florida which use the Sequoia system, I think the rest use ES&S uh, optical scanners, which, by the way, are equally, if not more, flawed. But they'll have just 11 days uh, to canvas the race and to go back and make sure we don't have another Palm Beach County-type uh, situation. And I guess I should specify a Palm Beach County March 13th situation as opposed to a Palm Beach County butterfly ballot 2000 presidential election uh, situation. Eleven and a half days. Will that be enough so that voters in the rest of the country even can have confidence that Florida got it right this time in 2012? Well, no, it's not enough. And there's a greater problem, and that is that Florida has a weak audit provision in its statutes right now. That needs to be strengthened, but even more incredibly, the audit takes place after the election is certified, which is, you know, closing the door after the horses have gone. <laughs> so they don't even try to do it in those uh, either six days or 11 and a half days prior to the certification? They don't do the post-election, you call it audit, I call it a spot check? That's correct. They don't. And you're right, a spot check is a better word for it, a better term for it, until and unless we get a more significant, a more robust audit that actually tells us uh, with a high level of statistical confidence that the election reported accurate results. Do, uh, do you feel that uh, 2% uh, Dan McRae is enough to uh, really get a, a, a 2% spot check is enough to know for a fact that the computers counted the ballots correctly? I think back to 2004 and uh, uh, the two top election officials in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, after the presidential uh, race, they were sentenced to the maximum in jail for having gamed a post-election uh, 3% post-election recount. Do you have confidence that even if they do carry off the 2%, that it is going to be enough to uh, discover any, uh, any errors, fraud, malfeasance, or malfunction? Well, the answer is that one size does not fit all. In uh, an election with a very wide margin of victory, um, it doesn't even require 2%. Even less than 2% can confirm with a very high level of statistical accuracy that uh, there is not a, a problem that has not been found. But in a very close race, the percentage of ballots that need to be manually counted to compare them, compare the paper ballot totals to the electronic ballot totals, the percentage of ballots that need to be reviewed uh, in a close election rises steeply, depending on how close that election is, and theoretically all the way to a 100% recount in order to assure, uh, assure you that the, uh, there's not been an error missed. 
a 100% recount, uh, begging the question as to why we just don't do that in the first place. But before we get to that, let me let me turn to uh, Pam Smith, Verified Voting. Uh, so, Pam, how common, you know, I, I spoke with uh, the Supervisor of Elections in Palm Beach County, Susan Booker. She told me uh, earlier this week that she said, quote, I have a feeling that this isn't the first time that this has happened, but we never noticed. Uh, how common are these kinds of problems with paper ballot op-scan computers, and can we even know how common they are, Pam? Well, I think you're onto something. It may not be possible to know just how common they are. There are a couple of uh, checks and tests that election officials regularly do, the first one more than the second one. The first one is that they'll do a pre-election test, which will sometimes catch errors and problems in the way that the ballot has been programmed and, and similar instances. But the kinds of pre-election tests that typically get done may not be robust enough to catch the kinds of problems that we saw in this recent election. What's more, the second type of test, which is a post-election audit, and as Dan described, they can be anywhere from this very minimal spot check to something really quite robust, which would be an audit that limits the risk of finding the wrong, uh, that, that the wrong outcome uh, occurred. Those are not done in every jurisdiction that has this type of system, and they need to be. There is no benefit to having a, a record that documents the voter's intent if no one's going to check that record of voter intent. Um, against the counting system. Now, I'm not for a minute saying we couldn't do a manual count up front, but if you don't, you absolutely must do some kind of uh, robust audit to make sure your system is counting correctly um, and that you're capturing any possible errors and, and problems. Well, and see, that's my concern. I, you know, again, speaking with uh, Susan Booker the other day, you know, she had said she had been doing these pre-election tests that you referenced, uh, uh, Pam Smith, these uh, logic and accuracy tests, which they're supposed to run they're supposed to run them on every machine used uh, to make sure that they tabulate correctly. She was doing them as par as per the industry standards, and uh, now she told me that it was because of the way they were doing those pre-election tests that they didn't catch this problem in advance. But you know, she stressed that. These these people who run elections, uh, you know, they're not IT folks. They're not technological wizards. They've been doing these pre-election tests uh, theoretically for years, and yet the tests were still not good enough to catch something like this that could have been found had the test been more robust. What gives you confidence that even if we did have post-election uh, spot checks or audits, uh, that election officials would be able to, uh, you know, to pull them off in such a way that we would discover problems like this, Pam? Well, I think that um, it's not, I don't, I don't think you could say that I have that, the fullest of confidence. I do believe most election officials are working very hard to try and do their job well. And if they, mm -hmm. they have the tools to do their job well, they really can. Um, the industry standard for pre-election testing is not robust enough. One of the challenges, uh, just to give you an example, because this starts to get really exceptionally geeky, and people like you and Dan and myself love this stuff and eat it for breakfast, but <laughs> for the general audience. Yes, we'll try to keep it uh, reasonable for mere mortals who are listening, indeed. <laughs> if you look at um, a pre-election test, basically takes uh, a test deck of ballots and 
scans them, and then and the and the votes shown on those ballots are known votes. We know what they are. So when you scan them and you run the tabulation, then you should know what the outcome will be. And if it deviates, then you know you've got a problem and you found it with your pre-election test. In a case like this one, there may be a challenge of if you have so many votes for candidate A and the same number of votes for candidate B and the same number of votes for candidate C, you're not going to necessarily catch this type of error. The, the test stack has to be much more robust than that. There's a great guy named John Washburn who's done some, some mm -hmm. studies and, and some work on how election officials can create their own better test decks without too much work. And um, hopefully you can post a link to his work on that um, on your site. But he he's examined this. Other people like Doug Jones has examined this. The the pre-election test can only find so many things. And as you said, it may not happen on all the machines. It may not happen for every single ballot style because often there are many. So failing that, then you, you literally must have the opportunity for a better, more robust check on the back end. They were really actually very fortunate to have found this. To have discovered it, yeah. And, and by the way, we've had um, – uh, we've had uh, Pam. By the way, are you on a speakerphone or on a regular phone? Because having a little bit, a little bit of trouble hearing you. You're a little bit muffled. You're... Uh, no, not on a speakerphone. Oh, that that's that's way better. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, we've had uh, John Washburn uh, actually on this show many times. He's up in Wisconsin, and you know, speaking of Wisconsin, they just had their primaries yesterday. Are you confident? Uh, yeah, I, I was actually talking to John Washburn uh, yesterday about this very issue, and uh, he pointed out that in Wisconsin, <clears throat> where they're having these important recall elections coming up, they do no post-election spot checks or audits at all, except for in presidential elections and only for the presidential race, and sit back in your chair now, that, pre that audit takes, back, takes, takes place four months after the election. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, Pam Smith, are you confident that the race, for example, that uh, was called last night in, uh, in Wisconsin, the uh, GOP primary, was actually called accurately, or do we have a, a Palm Beach County situation where the wrong winner was, uh, the wrong person was named the winner? I think you're right. I think we have to say that the public deserves to have justifiable confidence in the outcome in the accuracy of the outcome. And when we say justifiable, there has to be some evidence base for that confidence. And if you're not deriving any kind of evidence base until months after the election or not doing it at all for a particular election, then where's the justification to have confidence? Well, so, so in other words, do you have confidence? I realize I'm holding your feet to the fire here, Pam, but do you have confidence in the results that we were told about last night coming out of the state of Wisconsin based on the same op scanners that failed down in Florida? I think it would be true based on, on any op scanner. I don't think you can have confidence in that outcome unless you've had a way to check it. It's that simple. Uh, you're listening to the broadcast on KPFK. I'm Brad Friedman speaking with Pam Smith of Verified Voting and Dan McRae of the uh, Florida Voters Foundation. Dan, uh, I understand that hand counts in the state of Florida have now been made illegal. Even if an election administrator wants to uh, count an election by hand, even in a close race where uh, candidates would like to uh, have uh, ballots counted publicly, that is now illegal in the state of Florida. When did that happen, and how could that possibly happen, Dan? <laughs> it's, it's Florida. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a good thing we don't have close elections there where a hand count might be useful. Or that it's a big, gigantic swing state. That's uh-huh, right. that's right. Um, well, since 2000 and the debacle of 2000, um, the, the feds have done certain things and the state of Florida has done certain things. Um, none of them have been effective enough uh, because here we are talking about this more than a decade later. Um, the state of Florida... Um, has has done a couple of things. If you remember in 2000, the issue was there were multiple sets of rules for recounting across the counties. That was part of the problem, is mm-hmm. there wasn't a uniform standard. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, it made the, the clock run differently for the different counties, and it made the standard of evaluating ballots different for different counties. And eventually, that's the sort of thing the Supreme Court hung its hat on when it intervened. So what's Florida done since then? Well, for one thing, it was very embarrassed, and it doesn't want to be embarrassed anymore. Too late. So, <laughs> Go ahead. So, it, so in its wisdom, yeah. the Florida legislature has spent a fair amount of its time ensuring there will not be embarrassment more than that necessarily elections go well. I hate to be that critical, but I'm afraid that that's, that's what's indicated here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the 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 standards now are are uniformly simple they're absolutely uniform across the state they do things like uh if there is a half a percentage difference in the uh in the count then the ballots are run back through the same optical scanners uh and the and the essentially the same results almost always come out if they are so in a case like, Dan, let me just correct this. In a case like this, where Palm Beach County, where the computers had declared the three people who didn't win to be the winners, uh, if those elections had been close, they would have taken those paper ballots, run them through the same op scanners, and probably got the same results where the wrong uh, candidates were declared the winners. Correct. That would have been the first recount called a manual recount. Mm-hmm. If that had produced a result that was still... A quarter of a percent, which mm-hmm. is very close, a quarter of a percent difference in a race, then they would have looked only at problem ballots, which are undervotes, overvotes, and no votes. In other words, ballots where there's either too many marks, too few marks, or no marks at all. Um, and uh, they look at those, and if there is, if they can't find a problem that changes the result of the race in those ballots, then they declare the results of the Initial count correct. That's it. They don't do any more. They don't, and then they have this this uh, audit provision that takes place after they certify the election. After they certify, all they've that's all they've got now. That's all we've got now. And so what you say is is correct. There is nowhere in the legal procedure now that where a a a proper hand recount. Uh, can even happen. Susan Booker, uh, the supervisor of elections out there, told me she had to go to court. She had They had to actually go to court to get permission. They knew that the computer was counting wrong, but they actually had to go to court to get permission to count it by hand. She said that she was also a legislature, a legislator at the time uh, that the law was, that some of these laws were passed, that this uh, 2% post-election spot check law was passed. She said she had no idea that it would be a problem. She had no idea as a legislator that, uh, you know, that, that, that these things would, uh, the certification would take place 
before they had a chance to do the audit were allowing these people who have absolutely no knowledge of how elections work determine election laws instead of trusting the people to count the ballots to put an end to this nonsense the stuff that I know that I've been covering going on a decade now Dan I know you've been working on it in Florida for years uh, upon years Pam Smith uh, you know the same thing can be said of uh, verified voting so my question to you to you both as we're uh, uh, wrapping up this segment here is enough enough when can we just start uh, you know hand counting paper ballots in front of the people at the precinct when the polls close so that uh, we have democracy's gold standard so we don't have to go uh, you know, through this rocket science, these uh, post-election audits, if we're lucky to get them, that can be gamed. Can't we just finally simplify this mess? Wouldn't we all be better off if that was the case? And let me go to each of you on this uh, before we have to go. Pam, I know you've been working on uh, improving uh, the computer voting that we do have. But after looking at the problems that we seem to have year after year that don't seem to get any better, wouldn't we all be better off just hand-counting paper ballots? You know, I'll tell you, elections have to be resilient against the kinds of malfunctions that we've seen and the, kind, and the kinds of malfeasance that we know is possible. And in, in the instance like what happened in Susan Butcher's County, these are the kinds of incidents that actually drive change. Um, it's it's my sense, my takeaway, that if a jurisdiction is going to switch from their electronic counting system to a hand-counted system, this would be the kind of thing that would drive them to it. So I'll be very interested to see what, what transpires next in Palm Beach and elsewhere. Well, as as the president of a foundation with the word verified voting in it, it seems to me that the only way that we can truly verify the results is to hand count. And I don't come at that, uh, that thought uh, lightly. It's taken years and years looking at the possibilities and just seeing things get worse, not better. Dan, I know it's illegal to hand count right now in the state of Florida, but would you be happier uh, if if all paper ballots were counted in front of, you know, actual human beings on election night at the polling place with results posted there before ballots moved anywhere? You know, it takes us back to talking about mere mortals. Whatever we do, mortals, normal people, regular guys on the street should be able to understand and have confidence in the election. Hand counting every ballot is one way, and it's certainly a standard against which everything else should be measured. I think there are technologies that can do that in a way that's clearly understandable that everybody can have confidence in and that may be faster and less expensive, less cumbersome, and therefore they bring their own advantages to the table. Fa- faster but, and let me ask, said, Dan, Dan yeah, fa- but, let me just ask you, faster and less expensive than hand-counting paper ballots at the precinct on election night? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um and that, that is, you know, th- th- there's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of pushback out there. What, what, technology, what technology would that be? Post-election audits, good, solid post-election audits. They are not complicated. They are not cumbersome. They are not expensive. They are not slow. 
Well, they're not they're not slow, but they don't take place on election night. We've got chain of custody issues that that come into play. Post-election audits can be gamed even when they're done very well. There are ways to gain to gain to game them and ultimately, even if they're not gamed, the question that the people will have, uh A did the computers count it correctly and B was the post-election audit math, randomness, everything else done correctly? Uh, even if it is, I think people walk away, uh, particularly in a close election, a close contentious election, having questions about that, Dan. I understand, and I agree with you. That's, just, that's why at the top I said that a full hand count is really the benchmark against, any, against yeah. which anything else has to be measured. But I think there are ways to do it more efficiently, faster, and, of course, there are a lot of folks out there who, who just give such powerful pushback to the idea of a full hand recount. We have to recognize that elections belong to everybody. Right. And so, so we have to find a way to come together and improve elections. And uh, I think there are ways to do it to the standard that you're talking about. Well, I hope so. I know in New Hampshire, where they do the hand counts uh, in, in some 40% of the towns out there, uh, quite often those towns are finished, completed with their hand counts before the optical scan towns uh, have completed. Uh, and there are very few questions about the results in those hand count towns. This conversation, I suspect, will continue, uh, not just throughout this year, but uh, for too many more in the future. Uh, Pamela Smith, president of Verified Voting Foundation and VerifiedVoting.org. Thank you for your time, as well as, well as uh, my thanks to Dan McRae, president of the Florida Voters Foundation. You can find uh, him and his work and their work at FloridaVoters.org. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much Thank for you, having Brad. us on. All right. Keep up the good fight. Uh, speaking of the fight, here we are 44 years later after uh, that fateful day on 19, uh, April 4, 1968, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the fight for our rights and the fight for our voting rights continues. Um, we're going to uh, we're going to take a short break and come back with uh, Margot Paez and discuss the pepper spray incident last night at Santa Monica College. Desi Doyen with some green news. But before we get to that break, uh, a reminder of what happened 44 years ago today in Memphis, Tennessee. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dan Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Accused in shocked city tonight, no one can believe what has happened. It's been just a little over an hour.
since Dr. Martin Luther King died from an assassin's bullet. King was shot as he stood on the balcony in front of room 306 in the Lorraine Hotel. He was alone. His aides were in the room behind him. Dr. King was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital emergency room. He died at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lives by nonviolence. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are what direction we want to move in. Martin Luther King Jr. dead... 44 years ago today, April 4th, 1968, assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, fighting for your rights and mine. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast on KPFK. Stay with us. Underground University is KPFK's new internship program and will turn listeners, activists, and undergrads into researchers, field reporters, and contributors through the art of public radio. There are over 100 shows produced at KPFK, and we can always use capable people willing to contribute their labor to the original public radio station in Southern California, KPFK. The first orientation of Underground University takes place this Monday, April 9th at 1 p.m. We'll gather at the station located at 3729 Coenga Boulevard West, North Hollywood, 91604, right off of the Universal City Red Line Station. Underground University is more than an internship program. It's an education in critical media. Find out more at kpfk.org and click on volunteer or email volunteer at kpfk.org to reserve your spot. Underground University, connecting activists, creating media. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. 
Standing up for your rights right here on KPFK. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Just before we went to the break, uh, you heard Robert Kennedy speaking about uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King 44 years ago today. Asked, what kind of country do we want to be? That question continues, and it played out last night in a, a remarkable scene, although I, I should say less remarkable uh, now, because we've seen similar scenes to this over the past few months, but a remarkable scene nonetheless at Santa Monica College, as hundreds of students showed up to a board of trustees meeting, not to demonstrate so much as to be uh, let in during a public comment period, uh, to give their thoughts on the uh, increase in tuition, a 400% increase in, uh, in tuition for some classes. Uh, I think we've got some, we have some audio of what took place uh, just after suddenly a campus security guard seems to have let loose with the pepper spray in the hallway at Santa Monica College. The students, the students were given no warning at all before that happened. Some 30 students were pepper sprayed, reportedly, uh, a, a, an infant, I think, as young as, uh, either four or five, five years old was among those who were doused with pepper spray in that incident last night in Santa Monica. Joining us now to talk about it is our own super duper. Associate producer Margot Paez. She's also a contributor to the KPFK Evening News. Uh, hey, Margot. I know you've been talking to folks about what happened last night. Uh, what the hell is going on here? Yes. Yeah, so I was just over at Santa Monica College today yeah. interviewing students. I spoke to a member uh, from st- uh, the vice president of student affairs briefly, although he really w- wasn't willing to give much comment. Can't imagine why. Uh, <laughs> in fact, actually, uh, a, a student tried to confront him after reading the official statement, and he walked away. So uh, there's a the students are complaining that they're not getting their voices heard. What happened was last night, uh, at least a hundred students had shown up to a board of trustees meeting. They meet once a month, mm-hmm. and they the board of trustees was aware. Uh, that these students were going to show up, right. but they still decided to hold their meeting in a smaller room, uh, according to the communications director for the Union for Classified Workers at Santa Monica College. He said it's very easy for the fact for the trustees to get a larger auditorium, and in fact, they have done that in the past at other meetings that they've held. They've had meetings within larger rooms, yes. but they purposely said, we want this smaller room. Did they... Uh, can it be said they underestimated how many people would show up, or are you suggesting that they purposely did not want a room that could accommodate all of these uh, people for this contentious issue? Well, the trustees are saying that they did not expect such a big turnout. Now, they did give out uh, tickets to some of the students to allow them inside. Mm-hmm. There were also members of the student government there, including uh, the vice president, and she actually today, when I spoke to her, her arm was in a sling because she had been pushed down uh, when the pepper spray uh, was released. Now, how, how many people could have been accommodated uh, in this particular room? Any idea? From they were going to allow ten students in. 
10? And there was supposed to be an overflow room where the rest of them would have to watch from a television set. They were going to allow 10 students yes. in. They're talking about raising tuition 400%. Is that correct be, for some classes? So it's a two, this is a two-tier uh, fee system that they're trying to put in. And according uh-huh. to the New York Times, this is never, this actually may be the first time a, a college has ever tried to do this. Uh-huh. And they want to do some sort of nonprofit foundation that would f- allow for these courses to be available, but you would have to pay extra to get them, and your financial aid would not go towards this. So it's basically uh, forcing the students to say, well, if, you know, do I need to take more another job? Do my parents need to work more so that I can get through college by getting into these uh, special courses they, that cost more money? And the students are saying, we cannot, we cannot afford this. This is impossible. Our parents are working three jobs. I may have to get a babysitting job, do extra, just to take these courses to graduate. And some of these students, uh, in, you know, they, their plan was to do this as two years, which community colleges are designed as a two-year program, transfer right. to a four-year university. And they're saying, at least one student said, you know, I've already been here three years. I may have to be here four years, and this is not going to help the situation. And so they're, they're trying out this concept. They're announcing this concept for the first time. Mm-hmm. hasn't been done anywhere else in the country. And surely they know there's going to be a pushback from the students, or at least let's not even call it pushback. There's going to be opinions about this from the students. And they meet once a month. They meet in a room that can accommodate 10 people. Yes. And the the student government mm-hmm. for Santa Monica College said that they unanimously voted against this type of two-tier system. And they've talked with the Board of Trustees, and the Board of Trustees has said uh, that they do not think the students are listening. Uh, And actually, the vice president of the student body told me today that she said, you know, I don't think that I could be able to pay for this. And one of the trustee members told her, well, I don't think that's true. I I don't think that that's actually the case for you. Even though she said, no, look, I'm saying I can't pay for it. Right. So there seems to be... Uh, while the trustees are saying uh, you're not listening, it seems like they are also not listening. There's some some sort of communication well, issue. No, yeah. Well, nobody's <laughs> hearing anybody when they're getting face faces full of pepper spray. Right. This uh, blogger uh, who calls himself uh, Zungu Zungu, uh, actually a student up at UC Berkeley, where cops resorted to uh, a similar violence, not pepper spray, but batons. Last November, uh, in in response to uh, student demonstrators, uh, this student wrote, uh, but to the question of the moment, how does this happen? How does pepper spray become the act of first resort? Even the anodyne phrasing of the L.A. Times admits that pepper spray was used proactively. They wrote several were o- were also overcome when pepper spray was released just outside the meeting room as officers tried to break up the crowd and not in response to some kind of clear and present danger. Or rather, Zungu Zungu writes, it was. A crowd must be dispersed before it does something, goes the logic of of the new preemptive policing. A crowd is itself a clear and present danger. If you wait until the crowd actually does something, you've waited too long, and so you preempt it by striking first. That seems to be the thinking going on. That seems to be the thinking that went on at Santa Monica. Margo Paez, I know you've been covering uh, Occupy Los Angeles for months out here. Uh, 
does that seem to be what went on last night in Santa Monica? And, and what are the students thinking uh, about the way these uh, campus security guards, not even real police, but campus security guards dealt with this issue? Right. Well, I spoke to uh, someone who who's uh, an, who works as an expert witness. He's uh, He was a police chief for 30 years in, in Nevada. And he said that this is essentially policy for for uh, police training and how to deal with crowd management. They're supposed to give a, a dispersal order. And I asked them, do they need to? Ask them, do they need to give a, an official announcement, like you know, saying right. you know, the state in the name of the people of the state of California, we are declaring this an unlawful assembly, so and so on. Correct. Or is it enough to just say, get back, get back? And his response was m- more or less that, well, it's up to the the best judgment of the officer. If they feel that this is reasonable, that there's a reasonable danger, that, then it is their prerogative to use pepper spray. Now, covering the Occupy movement, uh, during the eviction, they had 1,400 police officers. They arrested 300, almost 300 people, and there was no pepper spray used. And there was some uh, positive use of batons and, and other issues that right. happened once people were arrested, but there was a much bigger group of people there and, and yet they didn't need and to they resort. didn't need pepper spray then and this was also an enclosed environment here in a in a Inside, school building in a hallway, yeah. and there was as you said there was a 4-year-old child a 4-year-old little girl who was there with her mother and according to the students they believe that she wasn't actually a student though she was there to support them so she brought her daughter, n- not knowing that anything was going to happen. And right. I also asked this expert, you know, what is what about if there's a child there? And he said, well, they need to, they need to, you know, survey the the people. But it's also the responsibility of this mother to have thought twice about bringing the child there. To have thought twice about bringing her child to a college yes. campus. But the a meeting of the board of trustees. Yes. We can't even bring a public, our... A public meeting. And, of course, what would a child... Uh, what sort of interest would a four- or five-year-old child uh, have in the price of tuition at Santa Monica College? Uh, of course, that's not the only one facing uh, extraordinary increases uh, in student tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a report last month uh, that uh, it now costs more to attend the University of California and California State University system than it costs to go to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale. And a report yesterday published by uh, Demos details how uh, from 1990 to 2010, state funding for higher education per, st- per full-time student has plunged 26%. Yes. They write, <clears throat> as uh, state uh, support has declined, institutions have balanced the funding equation by charging students more. Between 90 and 2010, published prices for tuition and fees at public four-year universities more than doubled, rising by 116%. After adjusting for inflation, while the real price of two-year colleges climbed 71%. All the while, we've got wars, two wars, long wars, uh, unnecessary wars, uh, layoffs to nurses, police, firefighters, teachers. We're cutting public services, all the while giving tax cuts to the rich, billions in free money to Wall Street firms who tanked the world economy, and uh, at the same time, U.S. corporations continue to turn a record profit. Right. And in fact, um, corporations since the end of the recession have an increase of uh, 40% in profit, while people working have mm-hmm. not seen any increase in wages, if anything, at least a, a drop of 2%. 
And no wonder uh, people are hitting the streets and uh, and you're covering it. Uh, this led, by the way, uh, Sarah Belknap to tweet last night. There is apparently money for three cop choppers, pepper spray, batons, five squad cars, eight ambulances, but no money for education. And apparently there may be money to pay for the hospital bills of the students, according to the Board of Trustees. How thoughtful of them. Yes. You'll have more uh, on this tonight uh, on the KPFK Evening News. Yes, at 6 p.m. right here on KPFK. Well done, Marco. Thanks. I appreciate it. Appreciate the report. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Yeah, see, that's going to cheer me up, that green music. Uh, That can mean, of course, only one thing. Now we're now to cheer us up. Man, this is getting fun. Now to cheer us up is uh, our producer, Desi Doy, and also my uh, co-host of the Green News Report, Heard coast to coast and around the globe on fine syndicated radio stations near you. Hey, Des. Hey, how's you, it going? You're coming in to cheer us up tonight, right? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. From the wrong election uh, winners declared in Florida to the mess in Santa Monica, surely today's Green News Report will have lots and lots of good news for us. Gosh, isn't the weather nice outside? <laughs> You got nothing. Do you? <laughs> nothing that I All would right. say would qualify for good green oh, news. Just brother. basically green news. All right. Well, we're running uh, late, so let's get right to the green news. And I suspect I'll have some questions afterwards. Oh, about uh, those tornadoes in Texas. Green news report. This is not your father's Republican Party. Biden smacks down GOP attacks on American-made clean energy. Simply because the United States and the industrial world has been poisoning the atmosphere for the last 300 years. It doesn't mean that the rest of the world should be doing exactly that. Trying to save the disappearing Maldives from global warming. The FDA says okay to BPA. Pesticides implicated in disappearance of the bees, plus... You're right. It's a cool car, and it's uh, smooth as glass. So people are interested in that kind of vehicle, check out the Chevy Volt. Whoops. Fox News debunks itself. Whoops, indeed. All of that and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Sure, these days, everybody hates air pollution. But when I was a kid, we celebrated it as bonus clouds. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Des, we had been tracking through the month of March the record high temperatures in my old hometown of St. Louis, where it broke the record for 80-plus degree days. Since April has gotten here, two days in the 90s. This has been the year without a winter. Yeah, I can't wait to see what summer brings, especially since there's likely to be drought and even more heat waves. Oh, what fun. What do you have for us today? Well, the Obama administration has come out swinging against Republicans' blame game over rising gas prices. On top of a new ad campaign slamming Republican presidential frontrunner Mitt Romney as Big Oil's best friend forever, (laughs) Vice President Joe Biden slammed the Republicans' attacks on America's clean energy industry on Sunday's Face the Nation. We're pumping 650,000 barrels of oil a day, more than we did when we took office. There are more oil rigs and gas rigs running in the United States today than all the rest of the world combined. Mind. And these guys, what's their policy? Continue a $4 billion tax cut for their oil companies? And they're going out there and they're emasculating all the efforts to deal with renewable energy. 
Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney repeated his previous attacks on fuel-efficient cars from America when he told the Wisconsin crowd on Monday that he thinks America isn't ready for the Chevy Volt. Mitt must not be listening to the Fox News Channel show Fox and Friends, which in a remarkable departure from their standard operating procedure, actually allowed guest Lee Speakerman to debunk the very myths and attacks Fox has been perpetrating for months about the Chevy Volt. I love Fox News and I love feel, feel like I'm kind of attacking my own family here, but like a lot of my fellow conservatives, uh, they seem to have kind of a fetish for demonizing the Volt, and they're perpetuating this myth that the Volt was some kind of Obama administration green energy fantasy forced on General Motors during the bailout. It had been in development two years before Obama was elected. Lee, I'm glad you brought up that the myth that so many people think that Barack Obama, you know, came to office and, and shoved this down GM's throat. Yeah, I wonder where Fox News viewers got that myth in the first place. Indeed, and coincidentally, General Motors is again number one in sales in the world, and they announced yesterday that fuel-efficient vehicles vehicles are their fastest growing segment with over 40% of sales in March. The FDA has ruled on BPA. The Food and Drug Administration will not step in to regulate the plastics chemical additive known as bisphenol A, or BPA for short. BPA is ubiquitous in food packaging and is found in the blood of nearly all Americans. Recent health studies implicate BPA in a host of reproductive problems, but the FDA declined a petition by environmental groups to ban or regulate the substance. They say they will continue to study the issue. So Obama's FDA has allowed this to happen. Yes, they have. Bees are also getting the cold shoulder from federal regulators. Scientists are asking the Environmental Protection Agency to revisit its approval of a corn pesticide that's been implicated in three new studies as the major factor responsible for the alarming disappearance of bees across the U.S. and the EU. And bees are important. Why? Because they help us get our food. Oh, there's that. There are low-carbon development strategies in renewable energies that the technology is there and I hope that people would start recognizing this and come to a, a more amicable understanding. Just, just don't be so silly. That was the first ever democratically elected Maldives president, Mohamed Nasheed, on The Daily Show on Monday night. He was ousted from office in a coup in February, yet he is still campaigning relentlessly to save his homeland from rising sea levels caused by global warming. President Nasheed is still trying to convince people and governments to act in time to reduce emissions that cause global warming. It's in a new documentary called The Island President, which is opening this week across the country. Right. Tell it to the people of the Maldives that there is no global warming as the seas rise and their island nation literally is disappearing into the waves. For more on that and the stories we did not get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Download us anytime via iTunes, listen to us on your mobile device via Stitcher Radio, and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. You know, Victor uh, Rocco over on uh, the Twitters writes during our Green News report there that the Green News report's name should be changed to 
We're all going to doubt to we're all going to die now report. <laughs> well, you know, I know it sometimes sounds like that, but there's a lot of good things going on too. There's a lot of work going on in clean energy around the world, so it, it's not all hopeless, hopeful or hopeless, I should yeah, say. Yeah, you're it's not, say all it's not all hopeful. <laughs> the uh, to to get the happy part of the news that doesn't happy part of the green news that doesn't make it into the audio report. Check out uh, the green news extra at green news. Bradblog.com. I've got uh, just a minute or so here, uh, Desi Doyen. So, uh, r- real quickly, these uh, tornadoes in Dallas, Texas, yesterday. I know you've got uh, you've got some family down there in Dallas. I trust they're all okay. Yes, everybody's fine. Uh, and and I, it was a yeah. remarkable outbreak. It was 12 tornadoes or so. Right. The official number is not completed yet from the National Weather Service, but remarkably, no deaths. Okay. Now, you, I know you've also got some uh, some climate, let's say, climate change deniers in that family a little bit. Now, are they starting to get the message there down there in Texas where they've had record heat, record droughts, now record tornadoes slicing through uh, uh, Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, Plano area? Uh, are they getting the message down there in Dallas yet, or are they still uh, believing what they hear on Fox News? Well, I'm sure you realize that the uh, cognitive dissonance is not necessarily something that triggers anyone to change their minds, especially when it comes to the ultra-right wing. But, you know, it should be pointed out that individual weather events can't be tied directly to climate change, but they do occur in, uh, there's a general trend toward these more unusual extreme weather events. So it'll be, it won't be until the end of this tornado season uh, when we'll actually be able to get the stats and the data and determine whether or not this was an actually really unusual uh, weather uh, tornado season or if it was just, you know, a regular unusual tornado season. I see. Well, you know, they seem, uh, seem to be coming much earlier. The tornadoes seem to be uh, much longer, larger, more fierce. Some of that can be anecdotal because we have better monitoring and uh, scientific systems to let people know about this. So, you know, we'll find out. It's, it's definitely occurring in a system that is turbocharged on steroids. That's what the scientists are saying. Although all these weather events now are happening in a system on steroids. Desi Doyen, thank you very much for that report. You can reach uh, Desi Doyen on the Twitters at Green News Report, and you can check him out anytime at greennews.bradblog.com. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, of course, to our super duper associate producer, Margo Paez. And uh, also my thanks to our soundboard operator, Federico Garcia. Please do stay tuned for John Wiener. And the 4 o'clock report coming up next. He'll have Tom Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas, in studio on his new book, Pity the Billionaires. Yeah, pity them indeed. Also, Ari Berman will be joining him on, oh, brother, the uh, new photo ID restrictions that have been approved by the state senate in Minnesota. That's going to go on the ballot. The voters are going to decide who gets to vote. I'll be back uh, next week at the same time. Until then, you can catch me uh, guest hosting Mike Malloy's show this Friday. And you can also find me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog and, of course, at bradblog.com. Good night, America.